Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You're about to hear a spoiler-filled discussion about the themes, the characters, and why this film is worth watching and thinking more deeply about. Yes, even Bridesmaids is worth thinking more deeply about. I'm Rob Stinnett, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what's up, man? What's up? We are back. We are recording more podcasts, and we are talking about Bridesmaids this week. Uh, I'm pretty excited about this. This is our uh, first comedy, right, man? This is our first, you know, like Back to the Future has got some funny moments. Truman Show is a comedy, but this is the first one that's like a capital C comedy. For sure. If it's not in the comedy store at Blockbuster or the comedy section, I know Blockbuster doesn't exist, but that's like the only section it is. That's the only part of Netflix it's on. Like, this is not dramas. This is not feel good. This is not sci-fi. There's nothing else but comedy. <laughs> like, that is the headline here. And so... That's our first one, and we have a very special guest, Naomi Beatty, to talk to us about it. That's right. Hello. Welcome, Naomi. Hi, thanks for having me. We're excited to have you. Um, for those of you who have not heard of Naomi Beatty, she is a screenwriting teacher and consultant who works with writers and producers out here in L.A. She works with uh, directors at all levels to develop their films and TV projects. Um, along the way, uh, Naomi has worked with uh, Blake Snyder, who uh, wrote Save the Cat, and she helped him with his second book, uh, Save the Cat Goes to the Movies, and went on to teach Save the Cat at weekend seminars out here in Los Angeles, and has been hired to write and rewrite screenplays, both original and adapted from all kinds of source material. And we're we're super excited to have her on the show today. Welcome, Naomi, to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. How, how did Andrew do for the introduction, like on a scale of one to ten? How how was that? Ten, you, you definitely. Can you can say three. You can say three. It's fine. I love the enthusiasm. <laughs> We're so glad to have you on here, Naomi. And I've talked with you about like my love for Blake Snyder and for screenwriting and all that sort of stuff. And so it's cool to hear that you do that. And in fact, listeners, she is an author. Andrew mentioned that. I'm holding in my hand. I know you can't see this because it's a podcast, but if you click on the show link that we have in the notes, you can get the screenplay outline workbook. It is fantastic. If you were a screenwriter, if you've ever wanted to tell a story, if you know a screenwriter, buy one of these, buy 10 of these, help a awesome writer, an awesome coach get this out into the world. Naomi, anything you want to say about this book and what it is and why you created it? Uh, that was an awesome plug. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've been teaching and working with writers for several years, um, about 10 years now. And I really created that workbook because students and people that I consult with, they were just asking for a resource that would sort of put all of the, you know, all of the steps that we typically walk through in trying to develop an idea. Um, people were just asking, like, can you put all of this into one thing so that I can take it with me and work through it, you know, at my own pace. Um, so that's, you know, that was kind of the genesis of it. Um, and really, I just tried to put together the type of resource that I also would like to use when I'm developing an idea, yeah. you know, a place to like collect all of those choices that you're making about a project so that you can reference them again and build on what you've already created instead of kind of like slapping new choices on willy nilly and then ending up with something that sort of feels Frankenstein together. This sort of hopefully, you know, allows you to take, take your idea, start at the beginning, kind of walk through a bunch of development steps, um, building on what you have from from the previous step and, you know, adding up to hopefully a great, a great outline for your screenplay. That's awesome. So here's the thing, Naomi, I've read a lot of screenwriting books, probably, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, like, um, I just love them. But my problem is I read them and then I sit down to write my screenplay. I'm like, wait, 
what did I read? I can't remember. And so what I love about your book is it's interactive the whole way through. It's not just like, okay, read this, not do anything with it. It's like, it's what I call like active learning. And so you're reading about an idea and then you're working on it real time. That is absolutely true. I remember like, I don't know how many times I've like read Sid Field and then I'm like writing and I'm like, ah, why isn't this working? And then like I go back and read, go, oh yeah, that's right. But this being a workbook, it's, you're right, it's right there with you. It's really, really cool. I'm super excited to actually work through this with some of my stuff. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm excited you guys are excited about it. So <laughs> I want to have Naomi on the podcast because she's a listener and um, I was like, oh, you're a writer. We should talk about the book. But we also picked Bridesmaids today. I, I said, okay, if you're going to come on the podcast, give a few different movie choices and you pick great ones. So, ones that are on my list, stuff like Moneyball, Children of Men that I want to talk about. And then you mentioned Bridesmaids which is not one that I would ever think about putting on the list or whatever else. But I was like, it feels like a different type of movie. It feels like an excuse to talk about comedies. And so that's what got me excited about it. But I'm curious for you, like of all the movies ever made, why is Bridesmaids one of the ones that you recommended? You know, it's one that the first time I saw the movie, I actually, I went to the theater. I was with three guy friends and I was really surprised that they liked the movie more than I did. You know, when we walked out of the theater, they were more excited <laughs> about it than I was. And so I think my initial reaction to it was, was a little bit lukewarm. Um, but then I've seen it so many times since then. And I feel like no matter how many times I see it, it doesn't get old for me. And I appreciate it more and more on every viewing. And I just, think, you know, if you're studying movies, like to learn to, you know, to write screenplays or to make movies, it's a really solid story. It's put together so well, the structure is there, the character development is there. And then it's kind of like wrapped in this raunchy, <laughs> broad comedy, you know, dressing. And so I think it's a really good example to, to look at and to learn from. Yeah, I think what's so interesting is, you know, this is a R rated comedy, like it's like, it's part of the like Apatow boom, R rated comedy. But as I was watching it, I was like, I hadn't seen it for a decade, probably since it first came out. And so I'd forgotten so many things. Um, but then I was also like, we don't quite have comedies like this anymore. Like this was such a big movie, broke box office records, did really, really well for a comedy. Nominated for two Oscars. Nominated wow. for two Oscars. <laughs> we've done, what is this, our 16th, 17th episode. We've never done a comedy. Comedies rarely win Oscars. Why are comedies like not usually considered meaningful movies, Andrew? I think it's because we latch on to the comedy part of it. Like when people think of bridesmaids, I think the first thing that like pops into their head is like the food poisoning diarrhea scene, right? Because those moments are so punchy and stick out to you so much that they sometimes carry the day. Right. They're the things that maybe go in the trailers or they stay front of mind. And those aren't necessarily meaningful. They're just entertaining gags. But in a lot of these movies, especially with Judd Apatow, I think he is a fascinating dichotomy of a storyteller. There can be so much meaning packed not that far under the surface. In fact, I would say the second half of Bridesmaids maybe is not that funny. Like it almost steers into just a like sweet story about someone trying to deal with growing up and friendship and 
I think we overlook that in a lot of really well-made comedies. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think because the tone of a comedy is light, right? We expect it to be light and we're laughing. It's easy to assume that there isn't anything important in the story. Um, and so we just, we lean on the the sort of laughter of it and the, the entertainment, the comedy of it and assume that it's not deeper than that. Um, but I also think because comedies are often lower in stakes, story stakes, right? That we assume mm -hmm, they're not mm -hmm. as meaningful as well. Because, you know, mm. I don't know how many comedies you can think of that have life and death stakes in them, right? So we go into it knowing it's a lower stakes situation. Oh, it's just about somebody's friendship, or it's just about, you know, not losing time with your kids as they grow up or what, what have you, right? And so I think we assume that it's not as uh, important or weighty of a story. Yeah, it's so interesting that you talked about going with three guy friends, because I'm like, there is no way I would ever go see this movie. I would never pick it out or ever choose it if it was not in the midst of the Apatow boom. You know, this is coasting off of 40-year-old Virgin, after Knocked Up, after Super Bad. Like, it's like all these movies, which were such big hits, uh, such a big deal, and then it's coming out of those, and that's what it becomes. But I did think that midway through the movie, I'm like, the only thing really at stake here is am I going to go to my friend's wedding or not? And yet, I felt so much of the movie so deeply in different ways and so i was like it's so interesting that like the stakes are so low but the feelings are so high in this movie yeah i would add that it's um the external stakes are really low right but if you're talking about the internal yeah. emotional stakes and those are harder things to kind of pin down and talk about um, right but the emotional stakes in comedies often are just as high as in any other genre you know you're right, Naomi. All of the deep stakes in this movie are really internal, and most of the external stakes are <laughs> very silly. You know, are we going to make it to the toilet in time? Am I going to get kicked off the plane or not? The external stakes can be very ludicrous, um, but the internal stakes are what's what's driving it um, to actually have some some meaning and to like resonate with us as people. And I think what makes the internal stakes so powerful is I'm like, oh man, I have been there. I have made a fool of myself. Like I'm never, you know, thrown up in the bridal dressing room. I've never quite done that, but I've definitely like, I've definitely recommended the restaurant where I'm like, hey guys, this is going to be great. And it bombs. I've definitely had those things where you like put yourself out there and then you're made the fool and you just want to like, I just want to crawl into my skin and disappear and go away. And so I thought uh -huh. this movie, like those kind of Michael Scott moments where you're just like, oh, what is happening? This movie really nailed those. Absolutely. I agree. Something I was just thinking about, Rob, when it comes to us perceiving comedies as having meaning or not, is it feels like in the early 2000s, there was this boom of comedies that actually did have quite a bit of meaning. But if I think further back in, in, in time, the internal stakes of a lot of comedies weren't that high. Like if you think about like a movie like Airplane, for instance, right? Like I don't know that there are internal stakes in that movie scene to scene that are high at all. Monty Python, ah, like I'm thinking about the Holy Grail, like there are really no internal stakes in that movie. It's just scene to scene ludicrous situations. And I think maybe we think about comedies being more like that, when in reality, much more recently, they have had a lot more of these internal empathetic stakes that we hang on to. Um, do you think that comedies have evolved over time? I absolutely think so. I think like, so I actually wrote down that there's two comedy eras, like in my life, that I think are like, these are golden eras of comedies. Okay. Um, one of my lists is 1980 to 1993. This is not like a comprehensive list, but this is kind of like big picture lists. So I have Stripes, Ghostbusters, 
Beverly Hills Cop, National Lampoon's Vacation, Ferris Bueller, Back to the Future, Big, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And I put 1993 because I think it kind of ends with Groundhog Day. I think that's like the last kind of big comedy of that era. But like you said, most of those, except for maybe maybe Dirty Rotten Scoundrels a little bit and Groundhog's Day for sure, most of those don't have the like soul to them. That And I think it really is Apatow, like 40-Year-Old Virgin, like that is a much more like heartfelt comedy. Like you feel so bad for that guy or like, will someone hook up with him? Like, I just feel so bad for this dude. And so you do like, you, you care about these people so much more. And I think that's part of what Apatow did was he was like, I'm not going to do like, okay, this is a police academy or okay, we're on an airplane. I don't need to make it an action movie. It's more just kind of real people in real situations. You know, he comes from a TV writing background. And so that's more what it is. It's like a two hour episode of a sitcom with a hard R that kind of like, is what elevates it and what gets the good jokes. So do you think Apatow like ushered in like a new era of comedy, like after the 90s? There was like a dry spell in the 90s, is this what you're saying? And then come sometime in the mid 2000s, you think it sort of kicked back up? Yeah, I think it dies. I think from 93, I mean, there's a few in the 90s, but like, I don't think 90s had a lot of great comedies. I think they're broad and watered down and they're worse versions of 80s comedies. And then I think like old school to me is actually like, Patient Zero that I have is the first one to like kind of kick it off uh, in the 2000s. I think Will Ferrell is actually the guy who like re-kick starts it and then Apatow takes it to another level. And so I think Will Ferrell and Will Ferrell's movies are much more what we're like Anchorman. There's not like emotional stakes really <laughs> in Anchorman, you know, old school even. There's not much emotional stakes. Like I don't feel deeply for them the same way that I do for Seth Rogen's character and knocked up. Right. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think we're also sort of right around the same age. So I feel, listening to your list, I, I sort of felt like, oh, those are like the movies of my childhood and the movies of my kind of young adulthood-ish, you know? So I wonder if there's like a nostalgia factor for you too in in kind of thinking of those two, two kind of eras of movies. Like they, they were the right movies at the right time for you in your life, maybe. Um, but hold on. I feel yeah. like some I'm going to get an angry email from someone like writing down like, no, Flubber was great. And the Nutty Professor is amazing. And I'm like, hey, that's not the same as like Caddyshack and Ghostbusters. They're just like objectively, as you know, and Andrew, you're you're 10 years apart from me. So maybe you're like, Rob, those 80s movies, whatever. But I'm like, no, I feel like 80s comedies actually were better and 2000s comedies were better. I think they like have more staying the power. Like I grew up with '90s comedies, so the ones you just mentioned, like Flubber and Nutty Professor, like I do think Robin Williams is making um, a lot of his dramedies, Mrs. Doubtfire stuff like that. And maybe this goes by like era of performers. It's interesting. Almost all of the movies he listed for the '80s are all strong SNL right. alumni movies. It's The National Lampoon and snl era of like dan Aykroyd and bill murray it's it's that era right and you get in, in into the 90s and you have a lot of robin williams eddie murphy stuff um that i don't know how much of that stuck around but it certainly was popular when it came out it certainly hit and made money but we it might not have the staying power of what we're talking about with like a uh, ferris bueller or a ghostbusters or you know something like that Dumb and Dumber was the one other that I want to mention that someone's going to yell at me and say, how did you Dumb and Dumber is great. And that to me is the last great 90s comedy. Like, um, not that I'm the judge, jury and executioner, but I'm just like, I do think they kind of fall off. I do think like 
you know, like, I mean, Happy Gilmore is fine. And some of the other ones. Oh, it's are fine. true. Adam Sandler was doing a lot of broad comedies. It's, it's interesting how comedy eras almost revolve around certain personality to certain certain people you're talking about will ferrell sort of ushering in the comedy era in the early 2000s thing i think is interesting with him is he was always almost paired with adam mckay so it feels like adam mckay and judd apatow as sort of uh producers and directors sort of drove what became the 2000s comedies yeah that's true well we we've been talking for a long time around bridesmaids but not about bridesmaids so That's y'all, true. We, we need to start talking about bridesmaids. <laughs> and I just want to start with this question, which is, Andrew, how did you feel watching Bridesmaids? This is your first time seeing it, right? It was my first time seeing it, which I feel like is a theme on this podcast that we talk about movies that <laughs> are very popular and everyone has seen. And I go, surprise, I've never seen this movie before. So as a disclaimer, I do like movies and I do watch them <laughs> and I have seen them. Uh, we just keep we just keep going after movies that apparently have not been on the top of my list. Uh, no, you're, yeah, you're the uh, fresh I, eyes guy. You're like the guy who's been on the Amish <laughs> convent <laughs> and you just like came out and were like, hey, watch this movie. Yeah. What do you think? You, you get the fresh eyes award. The real secret is, is that Rob found me in a monastery about nine months ago <laughs> and said, hey, I want to start a podcast. Um, so, yeah, that's me. I'm the fresh eyes guy. But no, I, uh, I watched this for the first time this week. And I was really surprised at how sweet this movie is. I was expecting mm. something much more in the vein of like a knocked up that was very broad comedy, something like a super bad um, that it was much raunchier and much more hard R. And there certainly are those moments in the, this movie. But the level of like empathetic emotional sweetness that this movie has really uh surprised me and I was surprised at how engaged I was for a movie that I did not think was meant sort of for me as a target audience which it's not. Naomi how'd you feel watching it? Like I said I've seen it so many times that it's almost a little bit difficult to remember kind of that first you know that first blush of, of seeing it but I did go see it with three guy friends and I remember you know, it made such an impression on me that they all enjoyed it more than I did. So I think that um, almost the opposite reaction where I wasn't expecting it to be so raunchy because it was mm. about bridesmaids. And so going into it, I thought, oh, this is going to be like a light, clean, girly comedy. And instead, you know, there's uh, there's certainly some raunch and some edgy humor in there. Um, but I do totally agree that it has such a sweetness behind it. It has so much heart in the story um, and the center of the story kind of being on the friendship between the women. I was super impressed with how realistic they made that friendship. And then also how, um, you know, by the end of the movie, the women aren't being catty toward each other. I was I was very happy about that. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience, Naomi, where I'd seen it, like I said, probably 10 years ago. And then I watched it again and I was like, oh, this is way raunchier than I remembered. Like my mom listens to this podcast. She's going to be like, what are you doing? <laughs> and, you know, and so anyone who's like, oh, we recommended it and it's too raunchy. Sorry. But but I do think what you said is right, Andrew, which is like they kind of do most of that in the first 40 minutes to kind of like, hey, we got our hard R rating. And then they go into this really like kind of like sweet character drama um about friendships and that said it is so funny like i was like laughing a bunch i was like i loved seeing so many incredible women uh comedians i think that's another thing i love about this era is like 
in the 80s that I mentioned before, there were a few like really funny women comedians. But I was like, man, we have this like embarrassment of riches thinking about 2000 comedies of like, you know, all those Saturday Night Live alums of Kristen Wiig and Maya Rudolph and even other people who weren't Amy Poehler and Tina Fey and Rachel Dreck, you know, like there's so many incredible women comedians uh, that I loved that this was a showcase for them. And they really like let them cook, like watch reading about the trivia in it. It was like, hey, they did like weeks of just improv between them to get really comfortable with just joking around. And you could feel that like there was a lot of like comedy that felt like organic from the performers, from the characters that really drew me in. Yeah. And you actually you just hit on something that I hadn't I didn't realize about this movie before, which was we've had kind of this um, trend of remaking movies with female leads. Right. Like kind of switching the genders and uh, comedies included of putting women in the leads. And I don't tend to find those very funny. <laughs> a lot of times, you know, they stick a woman in the in the lead role and then it's like watch her watch her sort of fail at the comedy part of it. Uh, and I really appreciate that about this movie, that these women are genuinely funny. Their performances are genuinely funny. They're allowed to be really funny and, you know, they they pull it off. I could be wrong here, but I was sort of looking at the timeline and it feels like this movie is the thing that sort of kickstarted this all-female reboot concept in mm. in the last 10 years we've gotten the all-female ghostbusters with a lot of the same people from from this same movie director. we got oceans eight um what else uh, we got the dirty rotten scoundrels reboot uh with a different name it's called the hustle uh with anne hathaway and it seems like almost none of those have been critically well received while this movie is beloved, is wonderful, and it feels like this kind of started this trend that unfortunately didn't perform as as well as what this is, you know? And the yeah. reason why for me is like, this movie is written from a woman's point of view. You know, it's a sex comedy from a woman's point of view. And so it's like, oh my gosh, I've got to deal with this super horny, creepy guy. So like <laughs> a sex comedy in a guy's point of view is like, oh, Am I going to score? What's going on? You know, that sort of thing. But for, right. you know, like, at least for me, I'm like, you know, John Hamm, my boy, Don Draper, like he is vile. Like he is so creepy. And you're just like, get away from her. Get away from poor Kristen Wiig, you know, like, um, and so, but I so appreciated that, you know, it just felt like a movie about a woman's point of view. It felt like characters that were like, this is real friendships. These are real problems. Um, and it like leaned into the point of view and it wasn't trying to like, crowbar another theme into it it was original idea that was written by Kristen Wiig you know that was I don't know I'm not a woman but like I have a wife and four daughters and so I was like <laughs> I think about these things yeah there's a real there's a real sense of authenticity to this movie I think that I you know I'm still I, I'm appreciating a little bit more and more every time I see it okay so what about your most meaningful character well I think that um you know, the protagonist is almost always going to be the one that sort of conveys the the meaning, right, of the movie, because we go right. along with them on their emotional journey. So I would go with Kristen Wiig. Are we throwing in a supporting character who's also meaningful? You go for it. You're a guest. You do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, this is this is your time to shine. Oh, good. Well, I, then I'm breaking all the rules. And uh, I would also throw in Melissa McCarthy because I think that she's such a great, like, catalyst character for Kristen Wiig, right? Like, she's the one who sort of comes in and just spells it out for her and is like, here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what you need to be doing. And that scene that they're together in really encapsulates kind of the lesson, you know? Yeah, I mean, often in screenwriting, like 
it's the fool who has the wisest lesson of all. And she's definitely like, I mean, she has this great thing where she's like, I'm life. I'm smacking you in the face. I'm biting you on the butt. I'm life. I'm just like, she's so much and she's so everything. And, yeah. and then like Kristen Wiig finally slaps her back. But the, the thing in that scene that really got me was when she's like, you're saying you don't want a friend. And I'm right here looking at you saying, I want to be your friend. And like yeah. that kind of like broke through or it was like, at least for me, I was like, oh, we're not in a comedy anymore. Like, this is real. And I just, like, I empathize, like, not just Liz McCarthy, but this character she was playing. It was like, hey, I'm willing to be your friend, and I'm nothing to you. Like, I don't count. And the same way you're feeling discounted, you're doing the same thing to me. And yeah. I thought that was really mm. powerful in that scene. And it was so great coming from that character, too, because you're right. She was sort of the fool character all the way up to that point, right? So she's easy to dismiss. We don't sort of see that coming, that she's going to be the one with that kind of profound, you know, life lesson or that insightful kind of take on life to give to Kristen Wiig. And she's batting like a thousand in the movie. Like almost every line she says, it's just incre- like some of the best jokes when they're like brainstorming. They're like, what type of, you know, shower should we do? And they're like, we should do a prison shower. We should do like a fancy brunch shower and she's like i think we should do a fight club shower <laughs> like <they're> just like <laughs> fight <laughs> yes or the or when they're like hey do you have anything else to confess and she's like yeah i've got two dogs in my truck right now <laughs> yeah <laughs> like everything she does in that movie is solid gold and then yeah she has this meaningful moment and she was the one that got an Oscar nomination right. out of this movie, which I can't imagine a role like this being nominated for an Oscar nowadays, which is kind of sad because she is swinging a thousand, right? Like in our in our uh, Stranger Things episode, uh, Rob, you were talking about how Argyle was only batting about 300 for you. But like Melissa McCarthy in this movie is is batting a thousand. Like everything that, that she does is great. And so to see us as an industry and as a culture recognizing that at a high level is really refreshing and it feels like we have gotten away from that somewhat and maybe it's because we're just not making quality comedies right now mm. um but i think it is interesting that um her character which is the most bizarre and the most foolish and out there is the one that you know walked out of this thing with an oscar nomination um and it also launched her career really i mean she had been around working for two decades but like we weren't really talking about melissa mccarthy before this movie actually all of the women in this in this movie super launches them right That's yeah it really becomes a thing and like yeah she's hosting saturday night live she's doing so many things but i do want to get back to Kristen wig because she is the soul of this movie. I think she's what makes it work. I think with a lot of other leads, it doesn't work as well. And I think part of it is because there's this real like fragility to her. There's this real, like at least I felt, I felt like mm -hmm. bad. I was like, I was like, oh, is she okay? And I, I mentioned like part of how I felt in this movie was like, oh, it's funny, but I also just felt sad. I, I was heartbroken for her. I did feel her pain and her struggle in a way that I was like, this movie is worth talking about and thinking about because, again, I wouldn't have watched it normally, but like because it's such a big comedy, I'm watching it. But then as I'm going on the journey, I do. I'm worried about her. I feel for her. And when she's melting down in certain scenes, I'm like, ah, oh, stop it. You're pushing away the people that you need. Yeah, I think vulnerable is such an interesting way to describe her character because I think she is dealing with such relatable sort of like pain and like internal crisis that I think a lot of us deal with silently, which is this extreme self-doubt. Melissa McCarthy, she has this line where she's like, you're the one that's in your way, right? Like you are the hurdle in your life, not other people. And so you have to be the solution. 
which I think is something that is so relatable to so many of us of like feeling that we're in our own way and not knowing how to get out of it. Yeah. I feel like this is almost like the perfect storm of Kristen Wiig as a performer and the character kind of offering her an opportunity to play that vulnerable, fragile sort of person who's, I I don't want to make it sound too much like she's, you know, like a China doll or something who can't sort of make it through life because the character is also really funny and she says a lot of terrible things and, you know, cracks jokes and and puts herself in awkward situations and stuff. But it's such a perfect storm between the, the performer and the role because she does such a lovely job of being very real and kind of towing that line between like that scene where she learns of Lillian's engagement. Right. And that sort of like, I want to be happy for you, but I'm also so scared about what this means for me, (laughs) you know, and that, that like tug of war in her mind and in her heart. And, you know, I feel like that, that is such a real and relatable character thing, but then Kristen Wiig sort of icing on the cake just plays it really well also. That's that's so true. I had forgotten about that scene and the relatableness of that like feeling of wanting to be happy for someone when they have like a huge life experience. But then like your instant response can often be like, how does this affect me? So your friend getting married and you feel like you're being left behind or like uh, your friends start having kids. Right. And you don't have kids and you're like, ah, you're not gonna be able to hang out and have fun anymore. And that sucks for me. And but then being like, oh, but I'm being but I'm being selfish. So I can't say that out loud. Right. And, And that war that starts to happen when good things happen for other people that you perceive as being like a negative on you. Right. And how does that affect your own life? Yeah. And that's so real to have that the sort of all of those emotions simultaneously, you know, because I think that's probably one of the things that this movie does really well that makes it meaningful to talk about is that it shows that it's not it's not clear cut. It's not, oh, I'm happy for you or I'm not happy for you. It's like the simultaneous sort of like mixes of emotions that are very real. Yeah, absolutely. There's one other character who I think I'd be remiss to not talk about, which is uh, Rose Byrne. Byrne, yeah. Rose Byrne. She's so good in this movie. And Mm. it would be so easy for that character to just be a villain and be like kind of what William Zabka is in Karate Kid, just totally the bully or Biff Cannon (laughs) or whatever else. Just like, oh, she's the princess. She's just kind of the bully. She's the rich person. But she's also really funny. When in the scene in the car, when she's like crying and she's like, oh, I'm smiling because you look really ugly. And she's like, yeah, but I'm not ugly. And just like that back and forth is like really funny. And she just finds comedy in these moments. But at the same time, you kind of hate her and you understand why. And so I just thought she's a really great character too that like, I mean, you, you know, Naomi, like the antagonist is so important in your story and she's a great antagonist for this story. Yeah, I totally agree. And I love that they didn't paint her as a villain. Uh, I mean, yes, they give her plenty of, you know, she is the bad guy, (laughs) sort of uh, up against Kristen Wiig in the movie, right? She's the big obstacle. But that scene that they give her when uh, she and Kristen Wiig go to play tennis and the stepkids come up, right? And And she's like trying to sort of pretend that she has a decent relationship with them. And they're very clearly yeah. like, stop talking to me. You know, what, what's happening? We don't have this kind of relationship. I think that, that that moment is so important because it sort of humanizes her a little bit instead of making her, you know, the, the mustache twirling kind of villain character that <laughs> that you would expect to see in a broad comedy, you know? Absolutely. Okay, well, let's talk about meaningful scenes. Andrew, what's your most meaningful scene? 
so for me, the morning after scene, after uh, she spends the night with Chris O'Dowd's character, the cop, and he is a breath of fresh air, right? He's not John Hamm. He's not a creep. He actually likes her for her. And she's actually found a meaningful relationship, right? Like a, a, a guy who is fully interested in her. And she wakes up in, in the morning and he tries to get her to cook uh, or to, to bake. She had this, this bakery that closed. And so she is like sworn off baking because it, it hurts too much. So he tries to get her to bake and um, she like runs out the door on him. And it's the first good thing that's happened to her. And like the entire movie is this guy to some degree, right? Everything yeah, else this has been is, going downhill. This is after she's like fallen apart and like maybe the airplane. I can't remember exactly, but like so many things yeah. have gone bad. The Brazilian restaurant, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and most of all, we've seen, you know, John Hamm just be the worst one night stand walk of shame. <laughs> I mean, that opening scene when she's like, doesn't even want to go back inside and is like climbing over the fence and then the fence opens <laughs> like i forgot that i was laughing so hard so anyway john ham's just the worst and then this guy and by the way is, he's not credited in this movie he's not in true? the credits yeah How he's funny. not in the in, in the credits of this movie he asked not to be credited because he was so known for Mad Men at that point that he was afraid that if he was like listed in the credits and the promotional material people would think that this like wasn't a comedy and that it was a serious movie because he was in it and so wow. he asked to not be credited he is not in the credits at all if you watch them huh. yeah i'm looking at the imdb and i don't even see him which is right like... he asked to be uncredited which is wild anyway not yeah. to derail it but i i saw that <laughs> i thought that was like the, like the, the craziest thing pretty good trivia nugget for a kid straight out of the amish barn like that's good job <laughs> <dude>. that's... <laughs> i do what i can thank you very much <laughs> what about you naomi what's your most meaningful scene the one that really sort of touches me the most is the scene where Annie goes to find Lillian the morning of the wedding when Lillian's disappeared. The Roseburn character, Helen, can't find her. And so Annie helps out. She finds Lillian at her apartment. And it's just this moment between just the two of them. They haven't really been alone together for quite a while in the movie. And I feel like this is, well, first of all, this, it's sort of Annie's what I've learned speech, right? Which is the classic scene in a movie where right around, you know, the, the final confrontation, the protagonist gets to just tell us what they've learned <laughs> from this whole experience. Right. Um, but I love the moment between these two women because it's like sort of back to where they were in the beginning, where their true friendship is there. It's sort of like everything else is falling away and they're just having this moment between the two women where Lillian gets to express I think for the first time in the movie that she's genuinely worried about Annie and Annie expresses to her that like she's kind of turned a corner and she's going to be fine. And she is genuinely happy for her friend, uh, even though she's kind of been a hot mess for, you know, for the rest of the movie. So I love that moment between them. And it's, I hadn't realized this about that scene that this might be the only wedding movie that addresses this idea that things change after the wedding and you say goodbye to some things and it's sad mm -hmm. in some ways. I don't mm -hmm. think I've ever seen another wedding movie that kind of like shines light on that. Most wedding movies kind of focus on like the new chapter's beginning. You're finally married. Oh, thank God. You know, the woman's always like so thrilled to be getting married. And this is the rare one, I think, that spotlights that fact that there's a chapter ending too. And that's meaningful, yeah. you know? Yeah, that Maya Rudolph speech is so beautiful. Like, I like this bed and that bathtub that she fell asleep <laughs> yes. in on her 30th birthday. There's like all these yeah. little moments. And it's like, even though I'm walking into something great, this is sad here. 
And I thought like it was a great like show don't tell moment of just like you just saw their friendship, you know, like in that moment Mm -hmm. she walks in and it wasn't like, oh, my gosh, you, you just saw this is something that only a friend of 20 years can do in this tapestry that they have. And I thought that paid off so well in that scene. Yeah, definitely. Something that I loved about that scene was how nuanced it was in bringing all of the conflict of the movie together. I feel like a lot of the times, especially in romantic comedies, which this isn't, but the protagonist has done a lot of stuff wrong and then has to fix it. And what this scene does is like Lillian owns up to things that she did wrong in the friendship. She was like, I shouldn't have let Helen plan everything. That was wrong. She planned a wedding that I don't want. Um, Mm -hmm. Helen has just owned up to some stuff too. And all three of these main women by this scene are are painted as they've all made bad decisions versus it like just being the protagonist who needs to do the thing that will fix everything. Um, It's kind of nuanced in how actual relationships are. Everyone is working from their own perspective and dealing with their own stuff and hurting people in the process. And the nuance of that, of all the characters having to admit to that, I thought was really different from what I was expecting that scene to be. Yeah, and I think that that perfectly aligns with sort of the bigger theme of of the movie, right? Which has something to do with taking responsibility for your own life. So to see all of these women acknowledging the things that they did wrong along the way, and it's, again, it's not black and white. It's not cut and dry where one's a good person, one's a bad person, one did everything right and one did everything wrong, right? It's everybody kind of acknowledging, like, we're all sort of messy and making our way the best way we know how and, you know, making some mistakes, but hopefully doing better when you realize them. So I want to piggyback off this idea for my most meaningful scene, which is I have never been a bridesmaid, but I have been a groomsman (laughs) several times, been a best man. And what being in a wedding party means to me, at least, is like, oh, this is a chance for me to finally articulate how much my friendship means to you. Mm. And like, that's what you're really like, especially when you're best man and you're giving the speech and you're planning the bachelor party and you're planning these things like, yeah, there's dudes, whatever else who are like, ha ha ha. But for me, I'm like, this is my bro. <laughs> like, this is a dude who like, that's what my wife does. She's like, all you guys are do are like, you're like apes and whatever else. I'm like, no, but there's like this brotherhood, man. There's this friendship. And like, yeah, this is my bro and he's going to get married and that's a big deal. And man, I love you. I'm excited for you. And like declaring that is such a big deal. And then, but then all these other friends from walks of life are there too. And it feels threatening of like, oh, is my friendship at the same level as their friendship? Is my gift at the same level? And so for me, the most meaningful scene is that bridal shower scene, which is so funny. She walks in, the dude like hands her lemonade and she doesn't have a cup holder. And she's like, (laughs) oh man, that lemonade is so good. (laughs) She rides in on the horse on her high heels and then like everything's this Parisian theme. And then she finally just like, she's never had a moment. She doesn't have a win in all these scenes. And she finally gets it right, which is like, she goes around in town and she buys every perfect gift. She frames it, their first things. And it's all so amazing. And then all of a sudden, Rose Byrne's character goes and is like, oh, I bought you a ticket to Paris. And then it's just like, I cannot win, you know, like, like I'm always upstaged and her feeling so defeated. I was like, I get it in that moment. And that meltdown is so funny, but it's also really heartfelt as well. I love that scene. I love the the cookie and the chocolate fountain, but you're right. It's so, I mean, that's what makes the humor, (laughs) (laughs) that's what makes the humor even it makes me appreciate it even more. And I think it makes, makes it more of a release, right? Like that tension, because the emotions are so real. Like they're, they're real, you know, grounded characters kind of going through real grounded uh, experiences. And I think that that 
it's it's such a nice balance, right? To have those over the top funny moments, the things that you wish you could do when someone upstages you like that, um, and then kind of balanced with the with the real uh, emotional moments. One of the things with that that I think this movie does across the board, and you were talking about how it is one of the few wedding movies that talks about kind of the sadness of ending a chapter, not just the celebration of beginning one. This idea of being at a wedding and how kind of emotionally stressful it is for so many people in something that should ostensibly just be this big, joyful celebration. There are so many people's stories that come sort of colliding together that weddings actually are kind of a mess, right? Like. (laughs) an emotional mess that everyone is just kind of trying to hide from the bride and groom, not all the time, but like kind of a lot of the time, especially (laughs) if you're in the bridal party and right. And are like right up against all these things from like parents wanting to celebrate their kids, but their kids feeling like their wishes aren't being granted or, you know, friends not getting along because they're trying to enjoy their friendship with their friend. Right. It's, It's all these other people's stories colliding. And I don't know that I've seen a movie do it quite in this way before. And that in itself and doing it through comedy. Um, but I was like, I've had experiences like that. I've never thrown a giant cookie in a chocolate fountain, but I've like accidentally said stuff at weddings before that I've been like, oh, nope, that was nope. I should, you know, right. It was it was very relatable. And the family's on high alert. Everyone's on high alert. And it's such a big deal. Yeah. OK, one more scene that we have to talk about is not a most meaningful scene, but it's the most iconic scene, which is. The Brazilian food, like <laughs> wedding try and dress. People are like going to be like, what? How did you not talk about this scene? And I was just like, that scene, the way it's constructed and the way the comedy unfolds. I mean, it's probably a top 10 comedy scene of it all is. time. It is just perfect. And the way it's just like, it's the white room and yeah. the $800 dresses and the restaurants. <laughs> like the way they stacked everything on there and the construction of it. It's just comedy gold. I could not believe how beautiful that scene was. I thought the the sweatiness of all, yes. the, all the women. I was like, oh, that's just beautiful. I mean, that's what it feels like when you like are suddenly feeling like nauseous or nauseated <laughs> and you feel like everything is going to go wrong. It's that like sweat and like your hair gets sweaty and you feel it on your forehead. And and it's like a slow burn. Like the scene starts out being about a. Uh, a bridesmaid's dress price fight. It's are they going to mm-hmm. get the expensive one or the cheap one? And that's the conflict, right? right. And they build up all of the stakes that end up being about explosive diarrhea around <laughs> a completely different conflict that then slowly starts to bubble to the surface. And you like <laughs> when you see people sweating and it's so like I, I knew that scene is in the movie and I didn't <laughs> see it coming. And so it pays off. Everyone melts down. And then Kristen Wiig's like, no, I'm fine. And she's like, yeah. <laughs> she's like, have a Jordan Almond. And she yeah, gives her the Jordan Almond. <laughs> I'm actually, actually kind of hungry. And like, yeah. just, <laughs> and then my Rudolph just runs into the street. <laughs> and then just like her just sitting down slowly in the street. <laughs> yeah, that is an iconic oh. scene. I mean, it's, I don't know how many other comedy movies really have those scenes that, even if you haven't seen the movie, you probably know that scene is in there. It's that's it's become right. a part of, you know, pop culture. It's like a set piece. It's like talking about like Arnold Schwarzenegger, like driving through the lava factory in Terminator. <laughs> it's like that level of a set piece, which it is just in the pop culture zeitgeist. Yeah. And it, again, it's just really well constructed. And I don't know if there's like deep meaning there, but as someone who appreciates comedy and the art of it, I, would, I just want to give that a shout out. OK, Definitely. lots of meaningful scenes. Is there a least <laughs> meaningful scene in this movie? 
So I'm hard pressed to, to choose something because I do think this movie is so well put together. Pretty much everything is necessary, right? And adds to the movie. Um, if I had to choose something though, I would say kind of the running gag of Kristen Wiig's mom um, going to AA when she is not, she doesn't, <laughs> she doesn't have an addiction and then kind of capped off by her meeting Bill Cosby, the car mechanic at the end, just because I felt like that sort of runner was not really adding very much to the movie thematically or plot wise, you know, yeah. they, they gave her those little moments and it's fine. And, you know, I don't think I'd miss them if they went away, but I didn't think they were really, really necessary. If anything, I think they kind of add something to the tone of the movie, like um, skewing it a little bit away from just sort of like very cookie cutter broad comedy. So there's that, that it enhances, enhances it a little bit, but um but that is kind of something that I felt like, ah, could I, you know, would I miss this? Not really. Yeah, I'm with you. The mom does have one of my favorite lines, which is like, she's like, oh, I'm watching Castaway, which is kind of like Forrest Gump goes to an island. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're going to love like it. That at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just that one liner was like, that's how a parent would describe that movie. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, what <laughs> about you? True. These so scene? I, I felt like the scene where they're trying to get the cop to go look for Lillian and she's doing all of the stuff to try to get him to like chase after her or like arrest her or whatever. And so she's like speeding by him or whatever. I just feel like that scene went on too long. Yeah. Like when she when she backed up, I was like, oh, she's going to like just ram the back of his car. And then <laughs> she does like three minutes of other gags before she just rams the back of his car. And I was like, yeah, that's what I thought we were doing here. Yeah. Um, so it felt like he was trying to do like an injection of broad comedy in what had been a pretty long spree of no comedy in a, in a comedy movie. Um, but it felt like the momentum of the plot was really moving at that point, And that scene kind of like it just overstayed its welcome. It was it, there was there were some funny moments, but I was like, we didn't need all of these gags. We could have gone with like two of them and then kept the thing going. I can totally see that. I think the first time I saw the movie, I I had that same reaction of like, oh, this this is dragging a little bit, you know, like we're, yeah. we're kind of sitting in this set piece a little bit too long. But I do think that that long effort for her to get him to pay attention to her sort of earns the the payoff when he comes to the wedding to pick her up i think without that without them having like some meaningful moment there where she's you know showing i don't know how much effort she's putting in and really needs his help and then they kind of have a little you know face-to-face uh, -face moment kind of after the comedy stuff I feel like all yeah. of that sort of earns the very last scene with him. That's true. I hadn't really thought about it in that way. Because one of the other things that I wanted to say when I was talking about meaningful scene and why I thought the morning after scene with him was so was so meaningful was the idea of her rejecting doing what she loves and why that pushes her away from him. They don't really talk about it in the movie, but it feels like her main character flaw is this idea of hiding from what she truly wants in life because it's less painful to mm -hmm. do what you don't want to do, right? If you fail at doing something that you don't particularly care about, it's not very painful. That's interesting. It is painful when you fail at doing something that you like. So it seems like that like wound that, that she has is what is driving her for so much of the movie is every time she does something that she cares about, it gets shut down. And so hiding from the, the baking is her one way of protecting herself. So she's going to take all of the jobs uh, you know, like selling the jewelry or whatever. Like she doesn't care about that. It doesn't matter if she gets fired. But if she bakes again and she fails, if she makes something and it's not good, 
then that actually matters and that actually hurts. Right. Um, and so having to w put all that effort in to potentially get rejected, um, yeah, I, I, that is kind of a good point of how that pulls that character forward as a part of her healing and resolution. I do still agree, though, that there's too much of the car back and forth. <laughs> so it's funny that we talk about all this because my least meaningful scene was actually him showing up at the end because I was just like, why didn't he get the invite to the wedding? Like, this is a little too perfect. Where <laughs> She just like says goodbye and then he's there in a suit and it, like it's not set up. I mean, it's set up emotionally, but like practically I was just like, wait, wait, wait. Where's he coming from? They haven't talked and he's just here and they're okay again. Like... I just needed it to be like some sort of like, how did this guy show up in the cute little jacket? They're okay. He somehow ate the cake from the raccoons. I don't know. It was just like, it was so clean and tidy that I wanted like a little bit more. Like I actually thought Rose Byrne's character was like, hey, I called him and asked him to come. Like I thought mm. that's what was going to happen, which I, and maybe because I expected that moment to happen. I thought, oh, that'd be a nice olive branch, which explains why he's here. Right. I, I will agree that the um, fighting the raccoons off to eat the cake, I did not buy that. I, I thought that that was going too far. I was like, no. <laughs> That's, <enough. laughs> That's unrealistic. <laughs> but I, you know, I have to say, maybe this is a uh, nostalgic, you know, girl of a certain age sort of thing, too. I love that, <laughs> that moment. I don't care how unrealistic it is. I love the moment where he shows up after the wedding because it's so very 16 Candles. And like the protagonist finally gets her Jake in the sports car, <laughs> you know, to, to ride off into the sunset with. Well, and it is a sweet moment. And he's great. He is so likable. He's not trying to do tons of comedy but he is funny and he is funny yeah, i think definitely. i think chris o'dowd is a gem yeah. like he's he feels underused to me in hollywood i think he is he is wonderful yeah so he's great. hollywood if you're listening chris o'dowd like give him some more <laughs> get on that okay well we're getting to the last category which is what is this movie trying to say we may have covered this earlier but this is it kind of your final argument closing argument of what is the meaning of the movie of bridesmaids andrew go I think this movie is about how to deal with arrested development within your relationships as you get older. I think it's all packed around a wedding and a new group of friends and all of the like hijinks that comes from the bridesmaids thing. But I think the journey that we see Kristen Wiig's character go on is this idea of how do I get out of stasis when I've been knocked down? And I think learning how to risk being vulnerable again with new relationships and old relationships um, is the thing that she has has to learn. And uh, I found that particularly like compelling to me. And I really empathized with that a lot of learning how to risk when um, you're feeling hurt for a variety of reasons. Naomi? Well, I, I think I pretty much agree. Um, I might come at it from like just a slightly different angle. But I think for me, ultimately, it's about change and how we handle change, right? And specifically, mm -hmm. it's about how change is inevitable. You you can't avoid it no matter how badly you'd like to and uh, how, how frightening it is and how scary it is to think about what's going to change and to think about risking and possibly losing, right? It's easier to kind of like hold on to to terrible what you have now instead of risking going for something bigger and better. Yeah. But you can't you can't avoid change because even when you even when you're stuck, the world changes around you and people change around you, right? So I think ultimately the yeah. message of the movie is that you have to try to steer the direction of your life if you want to be happy and have a life that you want. You have to make choices and you have to take action because being stuck doesn't 
doesn't get you anything. You know, it just gets you stuck when everyone else is changing and going on and moving forward. That's awesome. I had one other thing that I want to talk about with the meaning of the movie to me, which is there is this great character moment early on. I think it's the very first scene with Kristen Wiig. And uh, I keep wanting to say Don Draper. John Hamm is asleep <laughs> and she goes and she puts on like makeup and like fluffs up her hair and like fluffs yeah, up her Yeah, that is like the very first moment of the movie. It's yeah. like, this is yeah. how, like, I mean, you know this, like the way you introduce your character matters so much. And she's introduced as like, even though he's asleep, she still has to look great and be great and be something else. And this movie is about insecurity, I think, more than anything. It's about mm-hmm. trying to, like, show something. It's about trying to prove yourself. Like, with every kind of, like, bridesmaid mishap she has, she's trying to prove her love. She's trying to prove her worth. She's saying, hey, I know you the best. I care about you the best. Versus just being and being confident in who you are and who you're supposed to be. And until she feels like, oh, who I am is enough, and she has that revelation, that's what she has to overcome. Like, that's her big character arc. And I was like, this is such a really beautiful, simple story about insecurity versus confidence. And eventually she goes and kind of has that moment of confidence of like, no, I'm just going to do what I love. And I'm going to, like Andrew, you mentioned risk. And that's right. But she just kind of begins this confidence. And then everything else starts to fall into place. That doesn't mean it's not hard. That doesn't mean it's perfect. But she's just like, no, I know who I am. I know what I'm supposed to do. And she just steps into that. And seeing that character arc, I think, is what, like, was so poignant about the movie to me. And the nuance even of that that I loved about this movie is she starts to make those confident decisions and more stuff starts to fall into place. But, like, not everything. Like, she bakes the cake for Chris O'Dowd's character, right? And you're like, oh, she's going to leave it on the the porch and he's going to eat it. And she's going to be like, yeah, I'm back in. And he doesn't come out and get it. Right. Right. That felt so, so, like, real to me of, of this idea of even when you're making the right decisions and you're doing the healthy thing for your own life. It still's not going to go great every time. And I thought this, while staying light and staying comedic and having raccoons, um, <laughs> this this felt like real and not saccharine and overly sweet in the turns that it made with with the characters. That growth felt realistic. And I think part of the reason it sort of holds together like that and feels so solid is because the characters are so consistent. They're so true to their sort of core nature. Like the Chris O'Dowd character, he is very confident in what he wants and what he knows he deserves and who he is, right? So it would have felt false for him to so easily go back to her or let her back in, right? Just with by making a stupid cake. So you kind of need him to be consistent and be the guy who's going to be like, ah, it's too little too late. You know, I, I know I deserve a woman who <laughs> has her shit together a little bit more. Right. So, <laughs> sure. um, I think it, I think it makes sense. It feels true to that character for him to react that way. And, and then it nicely creates more conflict for her. Totally. I think this movie, everyone knows who they are and what they're doing. And I think these really nicely drawn characters make it come to life and make it a fun hang. And so, Thanks for being on the podcast, Naomi. It was great to have you. Yeah, how was your experience, well, Naomi? How was it doing this? It was great. I mean, I love talking about movies. I, I pretty much talk about movies all day, every day. So this is extra fun for me. <laughs> well, you're a natural. You did great. I loved your input. And everyone else listening, remember, screenplay outline workbook. I'm holding it in my hands again. You can't see it. But click on the show link and you can get it for yourself. Andrew, thanks for getting out of the barn and joining us today. 
Oh, of course. Uh, everyone else who's listening, remember to uh, like rate and review. Subscribe if you haven't already. Every time you subscribe, it just helps us in the algorithm. It helps other people find the podcast, too. So if you like it, you can help us out by doing that. Well, we will see you next time on The Meaning of the Movie.